to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Craig LaHoulier, author of a new book, Epic Tomatoes, How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. Craig, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Daryl. This is an absolute pleasure. I have been waiting for your book for so long. For those of you that know me, know I'm a tomato nut, and... Way back when, in the early 1990s, a bunch of tomato nuts got together on CompuServe in the gardening forum. And Craig was one of the names that came in and out. And uh, and we talked about tomatoes with all sorts of people. So, Craig, how did you... I never did find out, though. How did you get into gardening? Oh, gosh. Um, I blame uh, my grandparents, really. My grandfather on my mom's side and my dad... I was very fortunate that my grandfather had a big garden behind his home. And when I was three or four years old, some of my earliest memories are him just walking me through the garden. And now I got to see the scary spiders up close, the wonderful strawberries and his dahlias. And that really took, it made a great impression. And it really, my grandfather and I became great friends through that. A little bit later on, my father planted backyard gardens. And it uh, you know, no garden pun intended, but the seed was planted. And then once I got through the formative years and the dating and all that stuff, um, my wife and I got married in 1980. And one of the very first things we did, I was, I was we were up at Dartmouth College, and they had community um, plots that they prepared. And we planted our first garden the first year we were married, and uh, it just kind of took off. And, you know, I think, Daryl, that everyone is meant to do something, and so I... I it feels like I was meant to garden, and strangely enough, it feels like I was meant to take tomatoes in as a primary interest. <laughs> I think I think you, you may be right about that, that people are just meant to do something. So tell me about your home garden. What so do you the have home now? garden, we've, we've been in our house here in Raleigh, North Carolina for 22 years, and we've gotten to, well, first, uh, many, many people will know what it's like to go look at a plot of sod and, and envision a garden there, so we got out the shovel when we moved in, did the, the uh, back-aching work of turning it over, and uh, for the first four or five years, the trees were still relatively short, the sun exposure was great, and uh, since I like to plant a lot of tomatoes, uh, I was planting in soil that hadn't started developing different spores of tomato diseases. So I would usually plant 50, 100, 150 types of tomatoes interspersed with peppers and eggplant. And then the trees grew and the diseases came in and the critters figured out how to get there. So the last, I would say, since about 2007, 2008, maybe even a little bit earlier, I've developed in a way a, a real parallel interest in effective container gardening. And so... Most of my tomatoes, peppers, eggplant now grow on our concrete driveway. We've brought the garden to the sun, and uh, we found just extremely good results. Uh, as I tell people, we live in a subdivision, and uh, the neighbors, of course, think we're a little bit unusual because we have <laughs> up to 500 containers in our driveway. Uh, you know, we've had the local TV and do a show, and the catch line was, in the driveway. And so we're... I, I like being a curiosity. That's not a problem. But we have very good luck. And, in fact, last year I was asked by a story to investigate uh, just a small book on straw bale gardening. And so I embarked on that and found out that that's uh, essentially another form of container gardening because you, you can put the straw bales where the sun is and grow excellent crops in. Um, so I would say my average garden now would be 
100, 150 types of tomatoes, maybe 100 types of peppers, sweet and hot, 20, 30 types of eggplant, lots of seed saving, um, lots of work preserving, and lots of fun, meaning I get quite <laughs> depressed when it's all over. <laughs> Yeah, there's something about the end of tomato season that the first day or two is a relief, and then you you want to go back to it. We do, and me. we we do a lot of canning. So when when we get a little wistful, you know, the tears develop in the eyes and the taste buds uh, start flattening out. We open the closet and look at our 25 quarts of, of canned tomatoes, and and since we do grow tomatoes of all different colors and and uh, flavors. The jars show the greens and the yellows and the whites and the, the dark crimsons of the purples and the browns. So we um, we find a way to extend it. And of course, for gardeners, there's no real down season because if, if you're not growing and planting and harvesting, you're assessing what went well and not well, and then the seed catalogs come in. So you start planting and ordering. Pretty soon you're, you're seeding. And right now we're on the uh, I'm deep in planting stage and preparing to start planting seeds and distributing the dwarf project seeds. I think that's something we may talk about is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how we're breeding shorter-growing tomatoes for container gardening. So um, it's all great fun. And I have to say the book coming out, this is this is the first book. Um, this is all new for me. And in fact, every day it's new and added just a slight amount of stress into my, you know, corporate retired life. I'm having to plan ahead and look ahead and think about seminars and workshops, so um, I feel awfully busy, Daryl. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine, I can imagine, and I don't imagine, don't know how you're going to find time to grow tomatoes. It's interesting that you grow in containers, because my garden is also a driveway garden for the same reason, um, yeah. too much shade has developed, and I've done straw bales, and we're going to be doing that some more, because I found that that's an easy way to do it. Um, but I've also discovered the uh, fiber nursery pots that are used to grow trees. Have you mm-hmm. tried those? Mm-hmm. Those when are I, wonderful you know, for me. Yes. I, I am. I, I guess I could also be also known as the uh, frugal gardener, or I could be more crude and say the cheap gardener, meaning gardening really should be successful with, with sun and water, and good seed and good plants and good cultivation techniques. And a container to me is a way to keep your planting medium under control. So my containers are a mix of the black tree containers that have been tossed on the side of the road that no one wants, so I go and get my truck and pick them up, um, fake terracotta, with things that we've had for years and years. And, in fact, I've also gone to using grow bags, either fiber or black plastic, that last for years and can be bleached and detergent sprayed and, and sanitized. So... If it holds soil, I will use it. And I go from one gallon for my experimental hot peppers up to 10 or 15 gallons for indeterminate tomatoes. As you know, Daryl, since you also are container gardening, it's all about the watering and reading your plants and figuring out what they need. And if you do that, they can succeed absolutely equally as well as plants grown on the ground. You are absolutely right. It takes a little bit of... I guess it takes a little bit more watchfulness, perhaps, is the word to use, because you do have to be mindful of not, you know, having water going up and down and keeping your moisture steady, um, or you end up with blossom end rot and things like that. But it really is a lot easier in, in so many ways, because you're not digging in the dirt, you're not having to bend over so far, which 
for me is a, is an important thing, and for a lot of gardeners. Um, what do you, somebody's going to ask me to ask you? Um, what do you use for a growing medium? So what I use uh, for a growing medium is uh, I start with a, a. First of all, when I start my seeds, I use a sterile soilless mix. Um, and there are examples such as Stafford and Metromix 360, things like that that are really nice and fluffy and light. And I actually use that also as my transplant medium. So I go from a seeding tray and I plant very thickly. Uh, one of the things I outline in the book is my, it's not my dense planting technique. I'm sure it had been done many times previously, but I seem to have um, spread the word a little bit on the fact that you can plant 50 tomato seeds in a cell one by one inch or one a half by a half inch because they like tough love. You can transplant them, and they come apart easily, and they, you know, you can just have a great success rate. And you can start 2,000 seedlings in a small one-by-two-foot space by doing that. We do sell seedlings in the spring. But when I move into my containers, I, I, move, I work uh, a soilless mix with a little bit of food in it, um, so something like a uh, miracle Grow potting mix or the equivalent, where you've got a mixture of shredded bark and perlite and... Uh, I cut that with a little bit of compost cow manure. So I mix, tends to be a two and a half cubic foot bag of of the soilless mix with a 25 pound bag of a compost cow manure. And that gets you off to a good sterile start. Um, Those of us who love to grow heirlooms know that there are so many ways to introduce light a little later. That's only one of the best that can happen. So everything that the container gardener can do avoid introducing disease early on, uh, it gets you off to a good start. And then, as you say, it's a, you, you, do, you observe closely when you container garden, and you can kind of identify problems as they arise. Sometimes you can do something about it, and sometimes you can't. I've noticed from your blog that sometimes you will just rogue out several plants, you know, if you need to get the um, first tomato to get seed off of it, and then you'll pull the plant out to avoid spreading the disease around other, pe- other plants. Absolutely, that, yeah. That's something that's tough for people to do, but <laughs> when you're growing up, when you're growing a, growing a lot of plants and they're close together, sometimes it's your only choice. Craig, tell people what your blog is so people can find you. Well, I have a blog where I talk about what I'm doing in the garden, which is very simple. It's just nctomatoman.com, um, and then my daughter has helped me set up a new blog where I'm going to talk about what I learn when I'm off uh, on my book trail, and that's epictomatoes.com. Um, oh, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to separate out those things that I'm seeing while I'm walking around the garden, and that, that may have one type of an audience from just what does it feel like to, have, um, to be out there promoting a book? Who are the people that I'm meeting? What kind of great new ideas am I having? And uh, so uh, now, of course, when you do blogs, especially, well, when you do one blog, it's all about discipline. When I'm doing two, plog, two blogs, it will be very interesting to see how well I can uh, keep up feeding interesting information into both, but, but I will do my best. And do you have your schedule up on one of those so people can look and see where you're going to be for your book signing? Yes. I actually, on the front page of nctomatoman.com, I've started developing my schedule, and uh it's starting to look a little bit scary to me only because um, I'm, it's front-loaded. So I'm going to be doing a lot of things, a lot of places, up until maybe May or June. But then some really, uh, the ones I'm really looking forward to, uh, well, I'm looking forward to all of them, but the Seed Savers Exchange 
and they've been so important to me. Um, I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. In fact, none of us who are growing and enjoying heirloom anything may be doing what we're doing if uh, the Seed Savers Exchange didn't become established in, in 1975 and provide a great vector and mechanism for the proliferation of so many great heirloom varieties. And then the Monticello show in September, and uh, we've spoken to Monticello a few times. The people there are wonderful. If gardeners want to get reinvigorated or inspired to garden, all they need to do is walk through Thomas Jefferson's garden at Monticello, and you want to run home and pick out, get your shovel out and start planting stuff. <laughs> it's that powerful <laughs> a feeling. <laughs> there are so many. He, he introduced so many um, ways to garden, and I'm I'm just always impressed by how many different cloches and things there are to get an early start in the garden. We're going to have to take a little break pretty soon, but when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about about the late blight that you mentioned and about tomato taste and color and how you got into heirlooms and things like that. And then I'm sure somebody's going to want to know how to save seeds, so we'll talk about that too. Um, Just a reminder that um, I'm talking today to Craig LaHoulier, Um, the author of Epic Tomatoes, How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. And we'll be right back after this. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K Steaks, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is the author of Epic Tomatoes, How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. And Craig... Um, how did you get into heirlooms? You were one of the first people that started growing and spreading them around. Well, it's, I think it has to do with my personality. Um, some people are seekers, so, and some people are not, meaning if uh, some people would try chocolate ice cream, and if they like chocolate ice cream, every time they order ice cream, they'd want to stick pretty close to chocolate. And I am a, uh, if I find an ice cream I like, and I will try every variety that company offers. And I, I think that probably goes to my other hobbies, wine, beer, dark chocolates, you name it. So it happened with tomatoes, where when we first started gardening, I was very happy going to the nursery, uh, buying the six-pack of Better Boy. Then I got bored. It's like, these are red tomatoes, and I get, you know, and I grow green peppers. There's got to be more. Moved on to seed catalogs, and that helped a little bit. Of course, but it was when I discovered the Seed Sayers Exchange um, that a rainbow of opportunities then appeared. You could have tomatoes of every possible color and shape and size. 
And then once people started figuring out that I was someone who liked these, they would start sending me seeds, which is how I was the first person besides the originator to grow Anna Russian and get to name Cherokee Purple and get to name Lillian's Yellow Heirloom. So I was just, again, that's that choice thing. Why was why did I choose tomatoes? I seemed to be a magnet for people sending me all these great varieties. And then because I had friendships with people in seed companies, I could send them to Jeff McCormick at Southern Exposure, Rob Johnston at Johnny's, uh, Linda Sapp at Tomato Growers, and find ways to introduce them. Um, I have this other personality aspect where I like to give things away. So even with the Dwarf Project, it was never about how are we going to make money off this. It's about this is something great, and it will be even greater if everyone can try it and grow it. So um, I just think that's a fun way to go through life is just to give, you know, give, give great things to people, watch them become delighted, and that way it will be around forever because people will share it and more people will want to grow it. Well, you certainly have delighted me because I remember way back <laughs> 20 years ago, you gave some seeds to Chuck Wyatt. Chuck grew them out, gave them to me. Sometimes he would give me, you know, if you gave him ten, gave him ten seeds, he would give me five of them, and then I would spread them around here, and it yeah. was just such fun to do that. Yes, um, you introduced uh, me to Seed Savers Exchange too, and to um, Johnny's, and to Southern Exposure, and all sorts of wonderful places. And I thank you very much for that. Well, that that makes me feel very, very good. It, it's. Uh... And, and I want to keep doing that. And, and even, you know, the, the book has allowed me to tell my story. And now I'm going to get to go out and I want to inspire people to try and grow great tomatoes. And, and one of the first things I'm going to tell them is even the best gardeners will have failures, but um, gardeners are optimists. Uh, it, great tomato growing is, is almost an art, and it really becomes about finding the personalities of the tomatoes that you want to grow, how they do in your yard, even on given seasons, they'll vary. Uh, and so gardeners are optimistic by nature because, you know, winter comes and it cleanses us and we get inspired again. And so we can go and try it all again. It's not just one shot and you're done. It's we keep doing it year after year after year. So uh, that's why 36 years after... My, 34 years after my very first garden, it feels like my first one in terms of my excitement level when I'm getting ready for it. How fun. Uh, and I'm, I'm delighted also to hear you say that gardeners can have failures and move on because I think a lot of gardening shows say that, you know, they show perfect gardens. You're not afraid in your book to show pictures of plants that have, you know, some disease on them, some spots and things like that, and and you're willing to try again. And doggone, with this couple of summers that the East Coast has had recently, with rain and rain and rain, and late blight and late blight and late blight, you certainly need to be an optimist. You do. Uh, one of the first comments that I'm getting back on the book, and it's comments I've had from you on my blog, is, wow, you talk about when things are going bad. You share when you're a little bit depressed. And People have flipped through my book and said, wow, these look like tomatoes that I grow. And, and that, that's really what I wanted to, uh, to show people is that you can have the beautiful colors and the interesting shapes and sizes, but if you're going to grow non-hybrids, and even some hybrids, you will have concentric cracks and radial cracks and uh, a little bit of um, um, 
funny-looking blossom ends, cat-facing. And this is just what happens. But you know what? You don't eat the shape. You don't eat the blemish. You eat the tomato. And, uh, you know, so I've learned to look at what people think of as ugly tomatoes as absolutely beautiful tomatoes because I know that's where the flavor will be found. Oh, yes. Some of the funkiest-looking tomatoes that I grow are the tastiest. Now, how do you select for taste? And a lot of people think that color has something to do with taste, don't they? Well, as a culture, and maybe even as a species, being humans, we tend to eat with our eyes. So there's a few things about flavor and visual appearance. Um, And I think the first is that flavors can be very nostalgic. We I've talked to people that continue to refrigerate their tomatoes because ah! refrigerated tomatoes taste like the tomatoes that they loved when they were young because their mothers and fathers put the tomatoes in the refrigerator. Um, one of the things oh, I've got to see... I know, oh dear, it's, it's like <laughs> there should be a law. Um, yes. One of the things I've learned selling uh, tomato seedlings over the last 15 years is that you have to ease people into something that's different. So Green Giant, which is one of the most absolute knockout delicious tomatoes, and it doesn't even really change appearance when it's ripe, I've convinced enough people to try that, that it's one of our biggest selling seedlings. Um, But to get back to your original question, I've grown, oh, I went through the data the other night, and I think I've grown somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 varieties of tomatoes of all different colors, and I've convinced myself There really isn't a correlation between color and flavor. There is between specific varieties and flavors, so it's all in the genes. But what complicates it are two things. Your sweet might be my tart because we have different perceptions of flavor and different taste buds. Your great tomato, same variety, may not be my great tomato because our climates are different and the variety is reacting differently to the climate or our cultural techniques, how we're, how we're growing them, or the weather that year, or because so many people have now been getting into seed saving, which is a great thing, it also means that you're now picking up some great variation. Um, so when you go to Craigslist or you go to eBay or you go to different companies, and there never really has been a true guarantee you're going to get 100% the variety you ask for. But we've actually raised the um, risks a little bit these days And so really knowing what you're looking for, so if you want to grow a Cherokee purple, knowing that it's a one-pound, dark, dusky, rose-colored tomato, you may get a packet of seed and plant it, and it's a three-ounce, round, brown tomato, and you'll think you have Cherokee purple, but but you actually don't. You have a cross or a mix-up. So I know I introduced an awful lot of things in there, but I think um, you can see where all the different factors are in terms of no absolutes, Lots of variables, um, which means lots of room to explore. Room to explore. I think that's, it's really critical. And I also grow a lot of tomatoes to sell for the, um, to raise money for our church, for the mission fund. And I love introducing people to tomatoes, different tomatoes. But some years, they just don't come out tasting right because of the weather. Yeah. And so I urge them to try that variety again. Um, and and then find varieties. I, of course, the ones that I sell are ones that I know do well most years in in this part of the world. Um, but there are so many variations. I, I get seeds from friends on the West Coast, and I grow them here. And I say, what's the big whoopee deal about it? 
Because their climate is so different. Yes. Well, I think one great example is we've all, many many heirloom gardeners, I'm sure you've seen these, Daryl, are the big yellow ones with the red swirls. And I think I've grown 20 or 30, maybe 40 different ones, and they go under the name Regina's Yellow, Georgia Streak, uh, Big Rainbow, um, Robinson's Heirloom, and we could go on and on. And to me, no matter what the season, uh, and no, they can they can do great and produce like crazy. My taste buds pick them up as almost bland. I, I, I love to look at them. I love to put them in salads. I'll, I'll put them in a grilled cheese, but they can't be the star attraction in a plate because I just don't love the flavor. Um, and so that's a case where maybe certain variety types will have a tendency towards sweetness or mildness. But that's real, really one of the very few uh, generalizations that I can pick up in terms of colors and flavors. What I've always wanted to do when we did our tomato palooza tasting, we, we did 10 of those and we haven't done them in a while, is, is get some people blindfolded and take one tomato of each main color type and put them in front of them and see if they can guess the color. And I would, put, I would bet a fair amount of money that they wouldn't be able to do that because that would take away that eating with your eyes element and the expectations of what things are going to taste like. It's interesting that you would say that because I have found most of the yellows to be kind of on the bland side for me too. And I love the blacks and the purples. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, black from Tula, uh, something like that is a wonderful tomato. Have you also noticed that some of the early season tomatoes are not all that flavorful? And do you have a recommendation for one that is? I absolutely do. Um, well, I think one of the greatest of the early season tomatoes I've had, of course, Sun Gold Cherry comes on early, and maybe that, maybe that, maybe Sun Gold, which is a hybrid, the little gold cherry tomato deserves its own mm-hmm. category as uh, garden candy because. Um, people develop addictions to sun gold, and, you know, yes. all cherry tomatoes are relatively early. But I would say um, Azoichka, which is A-Z-O-Y-C-H-K-A. It, it's a, a Russian variety that was introduced through the Seed Savers Exchange in the mid-'90s, and that tomato is quite early, and it dispels any myths that people have that yellow tomatoes and even early tomatoes need be um, on the wimpy side when it comes to flavor. Um, How big is it? Uh, it can grow between six and eight ounces. It, it is a bright canary yellow, and the interior flesh is very pale yellow, almost an ivory color, and uh, it tends to be oblate, so it's wider than it is tall from blossom end to, to stem end. And uh, it's not the easiest one to find, but I do know a tomato grower supply company um, has it now, and I'm sure there are other companies that have uh, I, uh, the Seed Savers Exchange in their commercial catalog likely has it because um, it, it is truly a, a wonderful tomato. Now, the tricky part about it is because it, it is one of the Russian varieties, um, it does tend to uh, struggle a little bit in hot weather, and uh, it's one of those that may grow um, much better up north than it does down south where, where we get into our oven conditions quite early in the year. That's a good thing for people to know. Do you, have, do you know of any you know, plain old round one that's um, early that's good? Oh, I've grown Stupiche. Yeah. Um, Sasha's it's Altai. Good, isn't it? Um, I would think Gregory's Altai, which may have you grown that one, the kind of medium-sized pink one. It's uh, maybe a slightly oblate to round comes out of the same program of uh, Perestroika, 
Sasha's Altai and some other varieties that High Altitude Seed brought in. But that's a really good flavored variety that does come on quite early. And G-R-E-G-O-R-I apostrophe S A L T A I. That's another nice one. Yes, I like that one. Yes. We have to take a little break right now, but we'll be back talking more tomatoes right after this. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is the author of Epic Tomatoes, How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. And Craig Lehugior is the author, and he's going to tell you right now where you can get the book. And I suggest that you get a pen and paper handy, too, because we're going to be talking about more different varieties in a special dwarf tomato project that he's mentioned and, and some of the wonderful tomatoes that are coming out of that. Good. Uh, well, thanks, Daryl. If, if people are interested in the book, um, it is available in pretty much all of the brick-and-mortar stores now, and if you don't see it there, you can certainly ask for it. And uh, and I know that it is available on uh, your favorite Internet e-tailer, um, and I, from what I've seen, the Kindle edition will be out on January 16th, and right now it's available in a hardcover and softcover version. Um, and if people, people are, there is, go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just going to say, people are going to want this book. There is so much information in there. If you have any interest in tomatoes at all, you need this book. Well, thanks, Daryl. <laughs> well, I, I don't, you know, I don't have authors on if I don't like their books. So <laughs> the fact that you're on here is, is uh, a pretty good recommendation for people. Now, when, right before the break, we were talking about tomatoes that are early and will do well, and you mentioned a couple of them. And now let's talk about tomatoes that are resistant to late blight. Uh, um, so just a little bit of a background about late blight. Now, I'll be very brief on this, and then I'm, but I, if you do have a pen and paper, there are some just magnificent websites that I've found that that just capture the information um, in a very concise, easy-to-read uh, fashion. And I, I really did a little bit of studying of those. But essentially, light blight is, is a water mold. Um, it's, it's, let's see, Phytophthora infestans. And one of the things that I think gardeners can use to their advantage of understanding light blight is it needs a living host. And so unlike... 
other tomato diseases that are fungal in nature, such as Fusarium wilt, um, Septoria, some of which can winter over in garden debris in the garden or, or on the pots, you need a living host. And what that means is essentially potato tubers become the host of late blight over the year and probably the vectors of it spreading each season. Um, so that's really important to know because if you use good garden um, hygiene, clean your garden out, and you know that there's no one around you that's growing potatoes, you're not growing potatoes, and especially weeds that are in the tomato-potato family, those haven't uh, stayed alive through the winter and those are all cleared out, you should be okay. So it's something that comes in, and if, you, if there's infected potato tubers that sprout foliage and the spores develop and the wind blows and they blow it onto your plants, that is where your plants are going to pick it up. And I think, Darrell, you mentioned um, very wisely that you can have a live plant vector if you don't have good confidence that the transplants that you purchase, either at the farmer's market or from a vendor, a big box store, they need to be clean as well. So your garden is going to be fine. It's late blight comes in. And um, it's really 60 to 75 degree days, 50 to 60 degree nights, and wet weather that will bring it on. Um, so any questions there that you may have, Daryl, just based on that information that you'd want to follow up on, um, I'm going to take a pause there. Uh, no, other than... A lot of people are having have had trouble the last couple of years, particularly on the East Coast, because it rained darn near every day during the spring right. when it was still cool. And yes. that, if, if you've got an infection, it gets in there and it stays there. It does stay there. And in fact, one of the things, um, so we'll talk, first of all, it can be treated organically. There, there is a couple of different agents for sprays, um, one of which I've read is Zomix, another is EF400, another maybe is Activate, and these are uh, organic sprays that can be used, but any type of a treatment on your plant would have to be done in advance of the weather being appropriate for disease to set in. So you have to get to your plants before the spores land in your plant. Any treatment that was done after the plant is infected has proven to be uh, ineffective and so plant geneticists have figured out what strain of late blight is, is bothering us in the U.S. right now, and they've also figured out genetically um, where the resistance genes are. And as you alluded to, there is some plant, there is lots of plant breeding and lots of effort going on to develop uh, resistant varieties. And I think it is also important to note that resistance does not mean immunity. If you've got a heavy infection, heavy infestation of late blight fungi, even the best plants, even the ones that have been developed for resistance, will eventually um, succumb. It's just that you get more of your season out of it. But Randy Gardner and NC State has done a great job, um, and these have been tested by Cornell and others, varieties such as Defiant, um, Plum Regal, Mountain Merit, Mountain Magic, have been um, some of the newer ones. Another, another couple are Iron Lady and Jasper. Uh, what's not clear yet is 
what the flavors of these resistant types are versus some of your favorite heirlooms. And that's, that's all work that's going to have to be developed over time. And I'm sure that what, what, what they're going for right now is to get some varieties that have good light blight resistance. Once you've got that, then further breeding efforts will, I'm sure, um, succeed where you're working with some of the better heirlooms to do future crosses to see if you can build up a variety of colors and, and flavors from that. Now, we, what we can say about heirloom types is the vast majority of them have not been tested. And we, we, we assume that if heirloom types have been around for quite a while, some of them probably do have some natural tolerances to, tolerances to diseases, and that's why we just have to test them out. You know, if you grow a variety of tomatoes in your garden and you know that some things are going down to late blight and some of your plants are not, you may start to get an idea that there is some natural tolerance in some of these varieties, but that is, a, that is an area that's really um, not been delved into yet. I noticed in my own garden the last few years that Sasha's Altai was one of the last to go down, one of the last to succumb. So that might be worth trying for some people. Yeah, lemon drop. Um, they did test a few open pollinated varieties in the Cornell study, and they found that Matt's wild cherry, mm-hmm. uh, lemon drop, and tigerella, also known as Mr. Stripey, and this isn't the big Mr. Stripey, the big yellow one with the red stripes. Um, unfortunately, Mr. Stripey has been given to two tomato types. One is the small red one with the gold stripes, which is the one they tested. It's about a two to three ounce tomato. Um, and it's quite delicious. I've actually grown a version of it called Tiger Tom. Um, and so really, any of us who garden and are good at making observations can probably contribute to some of the work on late blight by, you know, if, you, if you're growing in your garden and you're seeing some late blight, you, you know, let your extension agent know. But if you're also seeing varieties that seem to be standing up to it very well, that would be other information that sites such as Cornell or people doing research on Lake Blight would probably want to know. Uh, and it kind of allows everyone who gardens and is interested in this problem to maybe take part in a little bit of research to see if they can, they can help this issue going forward. That's a good thing for people to do. And keeping records is so important. I can't, I always stress to my gardening friends, Keep a record. Know what the weather was a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, and match, use that to help you match up what's going on with the problems in your garden. For example, yeah, as you yeah. mentioned, if it's cool and wet, late blight is much more likely to spread and, and than when it's hot and dry. Yes, Darrell, and in fact, what the Cornell site has come up with something called light cast, and it's a way to calculate what the weather forecast is looking like and the relative humidity forecast is looking like as a predictor in the presence of um, late blight spores of your likelihood to get it or not. So there's actually some mathematical um, formulas being applied looking at weather to see if a late blight attack could be predicted. Um, the other thing that I've, that I've really done, so I've, it sounds like you're a record keeper as well, and as we all know, if you go out into the garden with your pad and your pen, and it's 80 degrees out and the humidity is high, you're crawling around your plants, you're, you're kind of starting to drip on your pad perhaps a little yes. bit. And, um, <laughs> so, uh, my but, but they do make notepad. they do make notepads that you can write on in the rain. Did you know wow. that? 
I'm I'm I'll dig it. I will dig it out, and I will post this and all the other information that we're talking about um, on our Facebook page. The the book that I have used that was given out to us at a Garden Writers Conference one year is called Right in the Rain. R I T E in the rain, all weather mini notebook, <laughs> and we got a sample. Wow. And if you sweat on it, if you know, you can write in it, um, and and it's not going to disintegrate on you. That sounds great. And you know, the other idea I came up with that I really enjoy is I take I, I bought a very inexpensive handheld two AAA battery uh, voice recorder, and so I walk through my garden every couple of days, sometimes every day. And, uh, you know, wait maybe till the neighbors have gone to work or, you know, so I don't sound like I'm having too much of a conversation with them myself. <laughs> and, and I just, uh, you know, Mexico midget's looking good today. We've got the first trust of fruit. You know, we've got a little bit of trouble starting to show up. Our Linux's favorite. Need to watch that for late blight. Later in the year, uh, oh, my tomatoes are turning colors. Uh, uh-oh, Cherokee chocolate instead of turning brown looks like it's turning red. I may have a cross there. You come in at night and, you know, you get your glass of wine and open up your Excel spreadsheet or whatever, and you just, you know, I, I wait till my wife Susan's up quilting so that she doesn't have to listen to me listen to myself. You just take it all down. So there's lots of different creative ways, I think. But the key is if you want to learn from what you do gardening, notes are important, observations are important, and then spending the time after the season to look back and listen and think about try to make that correlation between what you tried what you observed, what you learned from that, and therefore, what can you do a little bit differently next year to see if things can come out better? That's an excellent idea. I always try to do a little roundup in on paper sometime like in yeah. October after uh-huh. I've made some of my notes, and then I, I go on and I see, okay, you know, is the problem with this one that the pot was too small, that I didn't have enough fertility? Was it yeah. in too much shade? Was the pot getting too hot because it's black plastic and it's getting a lot of reflective heat? Um, and all of that adds to your gardening knowledge, too. And people that are growing oh, yeah. in the ground, whether they, they got the ground mulched or not, whether the ground yeah. was too soggy. Yes. Um, just the comparison, I used some white fiber grow bags and some black plastic grow bags, and just looking at the difference of how peppers and eggplant and tomatoes, which are varieties whose roots really enjoy the heat, will take off in the black containers because they're absorbing the heat of the sun versus the white containers, which are reflecting the heat of the sun. Now, they all kind of catch up with each other, but at some point within a couple of weeks of transplanting in those containers, the ones in the black containers are twice as big, and it's just fascinating to watch. Uh, you know, it's just plant physiology in action. You're, you've got a theory and, on And you get to see it. Yeah. You get to see it. We're going to have to take a little break right now, but when we come back, um, Craig, I'd like to talk to you about the Dwarf Tomato Project. That is so Great. exciting. We'll be right back after this break. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is the author of Epic Tomatoes, How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. And while Craig is an expert on heirloom tomatoes, and this book certainly shows that, um, you also have been involved in something called the Dwarf Tomato Project. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so, so that in a way follows on what we discussed a little while ago. So, you know, we, so I, I'm a seeker. So I seeked my way, um, probably not the right terminology, but we'll use it, through heirlooms and found great examples of all these colors. And then I get kind of itchy for creating some. And I'll I'll tell you where the impetus came from. Um, As I said, we've been selling seedlings locally for about 15 years, and the explosion in container gardening is wonderful because it means that more people are growing their own food, more people are realizing that they don't need a 20-by-20-foot plot of dirt. They can grow them in containers. But I get a lot of questions about, I love heirlooms. I love green giant and lilies yellow, but I don't know what to do with the 8- to 10-foot vines. What have you got for me that is short? And so there's two types of short-growing tomatoes. Um, There's determinant varieties such as taxi and aroma. They produce a lot of fruit, but they, they have a lot of fruit in relationship to foliage, meaning you don't have as much leaf surface for a lot of photosynthesis. This is why most determinant varieties are are somewhat weak in flavor. You just don't have the the factory and the tomato plant to produce all of those sugars and acids and flavor components because there's just plainly too many fruit per leaves in those. But they're great tomato machines. Dwarfs tend to behave like very slowly growing indeterminate varieties. So as a Cherokee purple may be eight feet tall by the end of the season, a dwarf will be four feet tall, but you still have a high ratio of foliage to fruit, so you have a high flavor potential. The problem is very few are known. Uh, Dwarf champion from the 1880s, golden dwarf champion from the 1890s, um, Tom Wagner actually bred one called lime green salad in the 1980s, but not much variety. And so I wanted to create some, and the trigger was my friend Katrina, Katrina Nusk Small, who gardens in Australia, and we met each other through Garden Web. She's a very good plant breeder. And so she made some crosses. She took some existing dwarfs and crossed them with some heirlooms, and I assembled a team, and it grew to about 250 people all over the world. We go to a site called tomatoville.com, and we talk about the varieties we're using and the results we're getting. And we just batted the varieties back and forth so we could squeeze two growing seasons into one calendar year. And our goal was to create great tomatoes and then get enough seed. Bill Minky out in Wisconsin, a great seed saver, grows seed up for us. And we pick a seed company and we say, here's 2,000 seeds of a great new dwarf variety. You can sell it now. We'll give you the pictures. All we want you to do is get it out there so people grow it. And we started this in 2006. And here we are, and we just have released uh, 36 new varieties over the last four years through different smaller seed companies. And we've got tomatoes that look and taste like Cherokee Purple and Cherokee Chocolate and Green Giant and Lillian's Yellow. The problem is we haven't really publicized them that much because we've done it as a hobby to have fun. We're all amateurs. We're all volunteers. And uh, we're hoping that the the court of public opinion picks up on these, tries them out, They'll be shared because they're all open-pollinated now. They're all stable. But we've enlarged the palette of container gardeners to get the Cherokee Purple experience in a plant that only grows 
four feet tall and lives very happily in a five-gallon pot. And where can people get these seeds? Well, um, there's a variety of companies that are selling them, um, one of which is Tatiana's Tomato Base. Another is Victory Seeds. Uh, another is Heritage Tomato Seeds. And another is Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. Um, and another is Sample Seed Shop. And we expect what will happen is, as they become more popular, they'll drift into the larger seed company catalogs. And I know Tomato Grower Supply has had some at, at times. And so it, it's kind of an incubator project. We've kind of put them out there. Um, a lot of them are being listed in the Seed Savers Exchange right now. Um, what I would suggest, if anyone who's listening to this is interested in a, a variety list, or where they can find specific varieties, they can just email me at nctomatoman, all one word, nctomatoman at gmail.com, and I can guide them into the right direction for finding them. That's good news for a lot of people. I also have a link to Tatiana's tomato base uh, yes. from our Facebook page, so yes. people can go there. But if you go to that website, be prepared to spend a few days, because once you start <laughs> reading about all the wonderful varieties... You're going to keep reading and reading and reading. <laughs> so don't plan to do anything else for the rest of the day. It's a wonderful what? resource. Uh, and I know that at some points you and I, Daryl, have talked about um, feed sources and uh, information. And, and I touched on this earlier on. It's so wonderful so many people are being involved in seed exchanges and selling seed. You know, the economy has almost driven that as a way for people to make a little bit of money, and it's great. What it means is lots of people, there's some people who are involved to sell the right varieties, but there's some people, it's more financially driven, let's just say, and it's hard to tell. So my view is do good research, you know, use Garden Watchdog, use Tatiana's Tomato Vase, look up your descriptions, and the Seed Savers Exchange your book, and it, just kind of be wise out there. Um, it, it's almost like a kid in a candy shop right now, and in fact... One of the things I tell people at my talks is we think about the golden age of heirlooms and if we lived back in our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers times, our gardeners, our gardens would be so much more diverse. And really the, the true thing is we have never lived in a time with more diversity, particularly in tomatoes, is now because all of this great stuff from the past has been brought into our presence through the seed service exchange and seed companies plus you know, the Dwarf Seed Project and Wild Boar Farms and other people are, are they're using the purple gene and, uh, or the blue gene and creating all these wild colors and stripes and sizes and shapes. So we're pretty darn lucky to be gardening when we are right now, particularly if you're a tomato gardener. But it's like walking into a restaurant with a wine list that's like a phone book. It can become very daunting to choose what you want to grow right now. That's a good point, and if you get to know whoever is growing your seeds, um, or if you do sit down with the seed catalogs, you can just learn a lot, and I always like to suggest to people that they find other tomato growers in their area um, yeah. and find out what does well for them, and very often you can find that through the um, Cooperative Extension Service Master Gardener Program, because there are a lot of master gardeners um, that are tomato nuts, as I am, and we share information and seeds. Craig, what's your favorite of the dwarf tomatoes? I've only grown a couple of them. 
I grew purple well, pride, and I enjoyed that. Um, what else? What do you like? So, if I were to pick my top dwarfs, I, w- I would say dwarf sweet sue, which is a a gorgeous plant. It, if you've not seen a dwarf potato leaf tomato growing, you've missed one of the true beauties of the tomato world. If you're one who just gets into um, the beauty of plants, because the foliage, as you've seen, Daryl, is almost a dark bluish green, and the leaves are mm-hmm. all kind of crinkly, and the stem in the middle is so thick. Uh, dwarf sweet sue is a six to eight ounce bright yellow. That is one of the best flavored tomatoes um, I've ever had, so therefore I named it after my wife, Susan. <clears throat> Excuse me. The green one writes, uh, summertime green, dwarf barrel beauty, and that would be one that would do well in, in kind of a short season area because it is, it is early and it's a five ounce round green one right. Rosella purple tastes just like Cherokee purple. And it looks like it, but it's an appointment. It is so fun. Yes, <laughs> it's a great <laughs> tomato. And with this year we've got um, some stripes, chocolate lightning, which is the color of Cherokee chocolate, kind of a brownish color, but it has jagged vertical green stripes on it, and it's just wonderfully flavored. And Victory Seeds, I think, is the, the single company that's selling that one right now, but it will become more available. And for those of you that are are for those that are scribbling as fast as they can, I will try to get all of this up on our Facebook page. And I will make sure that Daryl has any information that will be helpful to all of you with this, because uh, my view is the more people that get to try these, the more people will like them, which means it will bring tomato gardening into um, more more environments. Uh, We have them growing in our deck. We have them growing in our driveway. They're perfect for growing in straw bales. Um, they just love it. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, it, I don't expect it will become one of these hot trends, mostly because we've not publicized it, but I think people will, will enjoy them, and over time, you know, maybe in 50 or 100 years, they'll be considered heirlooms. We'll see if they make it that long. <laughs> well, I'm certain they will be, because you're breeding for flavor as well as just, uh, you know, the dwarf habit. For them, and some yeah. of the ones that I've had are, have just been wonderful. Um, yeah. And for those of you that have ever grown, grown a dwarf tomato, be prepared that that tomato stem is going to look like a tree trunk. <laughs> they are so sturdy and wonderful. Well, the other thing, Daryl, that it came to me, we all know that the, for our first walk into the box, box stores and we're trying tomatoes, and we look at these things called tomato cages that are about three or four feet tall and shaped like a cone. And we get them home and put them on our cherry tomato or a sweet million or a Cherokee purple. And it's May 15th, and the plant is already over the top of the cone. Yes. We're like, what, am, what is this for? Well, the dwarf tomato projects are the absolute best application for what I used to call useless tomato cages. <laughs> well, that's yeah. a good thing. Yes, they are They are good for that. And I ended up, I used to use the big old tomato cages that were made of concrete reinforcing wire and, yeah. you know, five feet tall, and you don't need those with these. I've cut no, some mine in half. Yes, they're, they're perfect for that. So if you've, been, if you've got 20 or 30 useless tomato cages under your house, get some dwarf tomatoes, and they'll be very, very happy. They're also great for peppers and eggplant, those, those short tomato cages, because that's pretty much where peppers and eggplants top out, is three or four feet tall. And for those of you that live up north and haven't grown a tall um, pepper plant, um, if you when you move south, you will find out why you need to stake them or cage them. Yeah, 
Mine get to four or five feet tall some years down here. But then again, we yeah we have a, a ridiculously long growing season that's usually yeah. cut short by disease or critters. <laughs> but that's another story altogether. <laughs> yeah. Well, Craig, I have had the best time talking to you today, and I hope that I can get you back to talk about your original heirlooms and some of the other um, dwarf tomatoes that are coming out. But I want to remind people again that the book is called Epic Tomatoes, that's E-P-I-C, Tomatoes, uh, How to Grow and Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. And Craig, tell people where they can get it again. Um, Epic Tomatoes, uh, if you actually go to my page, epictomatoes.com, it's got uh, links to retailers and information on retail, but really if you search it, you can find that it's, uh, it's at the Barnes & Nobles, the Amazons, the Books of Millions. It's, uh, the book has gotten around, and, and kind of a funny little story is yesterday I was in, in Barnes. I, I did this for the first time. I walked into Barnes & Noble with my gel pen, and I found it on the shelf, and so I did my very first, my book's on the shelf. Would you like me to sign them? And they're like, yes, 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 yes. So, so when you write your first book, Everything that happens to you is a first. The, the, the first copy I get in the mail, um, the first time someone asks me. So what I'm trying to do is, is document. I'm keeping a journal into what this feels like because it, it's surreal. Um, and I just feel you know, deeply, deeply uh, indebted to story publishing for doing just such a beautiful job because, you know, I wrote the words, the content, the content. Story made the book look beautiful, and I'm just so this, we're, we're out of time for right now, but I'll be putting all of that on our website. We'll be back with America's Homegrown Veggies next week.